Hi, welcome to the Plus Up podcast brought to you by Media Plus Advisors. I'm Susan George, and I'm here today with my two partners, Carly Feinstein and Perry Ann Grignon. Hi, ladies. Hello. Hi. Today, we are back with a guest. Perry Ann, can you do the introduction? Well, today we're really lucky. We've got George Romanis from uh, Right Spend with us today. And, um, you know, George, uh, we want you to introduce yourself and say hi. Uh, why don't you start with that and then uh, toss it back to me, and um, I'm going to jump into the first question. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Perry Ann, Susan, and Carly. Really appreciate the uh, the invitation to join you today on the podcast. Um, it's been great. You know, we've we've worked together in a previous life, and we're, we've been partnering together in our current lives, and it's been really great doing that this year. I've really enjoyed that. I, I value our friendship and our partnership, so this is fantastic. Thank you for having me. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background about myself. You know, I, I thought you might ask me for that question, and I, I realized this morning I've been playing in the uh, marketing procurement sandbox now for this is my 26th year, which is mind-boggling um, when I think about it. Um, honestly, when I was offered my first job at IBM on the marketing procurement team uh, way back when, I had to look up what procurement meant because I didn't even know what that was. Um, took the job anyway, um, but I always thought of procurement as like, you know, Don Rickles in Kelly's Heroes, the guy who uh, was a little bit of a wise guy and he'd get you whatever you needed, whether that was a, a bottle of scotch or a tank or whatever you needed. That That's what procurement was to me. But um, I started my career back then in the in the marketing procurement sourcing team. And that was about a month after it was launched and founded. Um, prior to that time, marketing didn't have to deal with procurement when they were at IBM. You know, IBM obviously had a large procurement organization, but they were buying computer parts and memory and, and all that good stuff. Uh, marketing came in and, and lost that sort of delegation of authority and, and procurement started to get involved. And I was right there at the very beginning. Um, spent nine years on the marketing team and the procurement side of, of the world uh, up to the sort of last role I had there was a global sourcing manager for advertising and media agencies. Um, and then after nine years in procurement, I sort of jumped ship, went onto the internal client side and went to work on the marketing team at IBM as a manager of agency operations. So still, still playing in that arena. Um, but really got great experience that because I, I sort of started to see things through the marketing team's eyes, uh, had a lot more exposure to the agencies, um, but not just through that procurement lens, which has really helped me, I think, um, in my career. Um, seven years later, I, I left IBM and, and went back to procurement at Intercontinental Hotels Group, and I spent three years as a director of uh, marketing, sort global marketing procurement there at, at IHG. And then when we all met was at Accenture and was there for almost three years leading up their agency tower um, from a sourcing of advertising and media agencies perspective. So again, really got experience working with other clients. You, you sometimes get tunnel vision when you're at, at IBM for so long, um, but Accenture really exposed me to different industries, different clients and, and managing them from that perspective. Uh, and my current role, I've been here almost four years now as a global partner with RightSpend. RightSpend, um, is a is a small marketing consultancy you know we specialize in agency compensation benchmarking and assessments that's really our bread and butter that's what we focus on we've got a, a small team in the states and, and a team in europe we're expanding uh, over the last couple of months which has been great um but you know i'm looking forward to talking to you today about agency compensation and and, and hopefully having a great conversation 
Perianne, if you want to want to kick it off, let's yeah, George. It. I just at first, I thank you so much, and I have to say, when you left Accenture, it it, it was like a gut punch to me. I <laughs> I was actually really worried um, because what you do is so important and niche. And it's not like, oh, you know, there's like a dozen people in the world that actually like know how to how to do, um, you know, evaluation of, you know, agency compensation and, you know, what's meaningful and what's not. You know, I want to start off by asking you when clients call up and they say, you know, I really want to understand agency remuneration. I really want to understand agency fees. You know, reading between the lines, what are they really asking for? Yeah, great question. You know, I uh, think about that a lot because at the end of the day, it's really boiled down to one thing. What does everybody want to know? Um, it's the old Ed Koch question on the streets of Manhattan. It's how am I doing, right? Every client wants to know how do I stack up against the industry? How do I stack up uh, against my competitors? If we can give them that data, that then it's that's, you know, manna from heaven. Um, auto clients want to know how they compare against other auto clients. They don't care about CPG. They don't care about other industries. Same with pharma, same with other financial services and things like that. It really boils down to, I've got my rates. Um, I've negotiated my fees. It, I think I've done a good job doing it, right? I've had an agency RFP or an agency search. I negotiated a rate card. I got some savings out of it, ideally. I've locked those rates into place for two or three years. How does it stack up? How did I do? And that's really where we come in, is, is taking an objective lens based on our data, um, which comes from all of our clients who opt in their data into our system. So it's real time and, and actual benchmarks. And they can stack themselves up against that industry stuff and see how they did. And then hopefully um, they're in a good spot, but if not, we work with them to uh, to get them into a more competitive place. You know, typically when you talk to clients, are you talking to procurement leads or is it finance or is it the end user themselves, um, like the media director or head of digital, or is it some combination? Yeah, combination. I mean, predominantly our our end users, the users of our platform, the folks that we're dealing with most predominantly are marketing procurement teams. Um, that said, we've got some companies that they don't have a marketing procurement organization. So maybe it's marketing ops or it could be marketing directly. In, in many of our client relationships, uh, procurement is the the user of the system, the, the, the person or the people that we're speaking with directly, but marketing is the benefactor. Marketing is funding it. Um, in my experience, you know, almost 20 years on the client side of marketing procurement organizations, Procurement budgets are little to nothing, if, if, if anything, right, for market research, for market intelligence. Um, and so oftentimes they will either partner with their marketing stakeholders or marketing will fund it directly. And, and, and then we'll work with the procurement teams because it's to marketing's benefit ultimately, right? Right. So when, you know, clients come to you, what would you say are the top three questions that they have? Are they asking about trends or comparables or overhead rates? Like what would you, if you had to box it into the top three things, what would they be? Yeah, yeah I'd say, you know, historically, um, I'll probably get into, into COVID in a little bit, right? But, but historically, the big questions are, they'll look at their rates. And, and again, as I mentioned a minute ago, they think they're in a great spot. You know, they did an RFP, 
they got their 12% savings. You know, it's always 10 to 12%. And I think agencies are onto that after all these years, right? Um, they got their savings and they look at their rates compared to benchmarks and they're still quite high. And they want to know why that is and how that's possible. Um, what's interesting to me is, you know, the first thing we'll start with is, well, what um, are your metrics? What did you agree to with this agency? What overhead factor is the agency applying to your business? What profit margin have they baked in to their rates? You know, simple questions that every client should know. And it, it, it's really amazing to me that and oftentimes they don't know these things. They haven't asked. They haven't formalized it in their MSAs. It's really important to get those definitions in place up front. Um, how does your agency compute salaries, right? Is it direct salaries? Do they add benefits or bonuses into that salary bucket? What's included or not in overhead? All those things, there's no right or wrong answer, but you need to have those definitions so that you can always get to that apples to apples comparison. With that information, then we can start to hone in really on the key drivers of what, might, what those variances might be caused by, right? Maybe the agency's baked in a 30% profit on your account. And you know what? Fair enough. If that's if the agency's doing great work and you love them and you want to pay them a premium, by all means, we're not going to tell you that that's wrong. We just want you to have the data to make that an informed business decision, right? Not an emotional one. Um, you know, the other the other question we get um, quite frequently, right, is a client will say, "Look, I'm not Procter and Gamble. I'm not Unilever. I don't spend ten billion dollars a year in marketing." I've got 20 million bucks and that's all I have. How do I possibly com compete with those guys when it comes to agency uh, fees and, and rates? Um, I think that's a fair question. Um, I, at face value, it, it does make sense, right? P&G, they're a market mover. They should probably get better rates and I'm sure that they do. They are not a client of ours, by the way, I should, I should add. Um, but I say, you know, 20 million bucks is a lot of money. It's not 8 billion, but it's a lot of money. Um, don't sell yourself short as a client and look at who you are, right? There are plenty of smaller clients that are very, very attractive to agencies. It could be a startup that's going to reinvent sliced bread next week, right? And an agency wants to have you on its roster. Um, the agency, maybe they just lost a key account and they're looking to replace that revenue, right? Most agencies would trip over themselves these days for a $20 million piece of business, right? So just because you're not a, you're not a Unilever or a P&G, don't sell yourself short and, and keep pushing and get that transparency into rates um, and look at it from a, from a sort of competitive perspective of how do we look at our rates? We start with salaries, we add overhead, we add profit, we divide by hours per FTE. Everybody's doing that, no, no matter how big or small they are. Every agency's doing that, no matter how big or small they are. Um, base it on that real-time data, and then make a, a good business decision as to what you're willing to spend or not, based on uh, based on your needs and, and what your brief looks like. George, it's so funny that you bring up that 12% thing. I remember Susan's going to remember this. We were running into that 12% number all the time in like savings always, or something. Always, always 12%. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah, you know, I joke with I've got a lot of friends still in procurement, and uh, again, was was born and and raised in that in that environment. Um, oftentimes, that's your target. That's your savings target as a as an individual or as a department, right? We need to drive ten percent savings. Well, guess what? Agencies can figure that out really quickly. They know you're going to take ten percent off, so let's increase it by twenty percent. Submit our rates. 
whack it down that 10%. And if you really, I guess the 12 comes from, let's just achieve a little bit more, <laughs> right? Let's show that we've exceeded our expectations and our, our KPIs. So now we've got 12%. Um, we look good. We've met our individual goals for the year. But are you really getting a competitive deal ultimately? Probably not. That's why it helps to uh, to really get an independent third party to to verify what your what your rates look like. I, we can't have a discussion about agency compensation without me saying you get what you pay for. So yeah. <laughs> whether that's, you know, the D team or the A team or making sure it's just everything you need that you're scoped for, you're, you know, the, so so comparing to benchmarks is so important to just have an idea of where you are, but also comparing to yourself, what your needs are, what you what your baseline is that that can't be forgotten. And often clients do forget that for momentarily as they are doing these kind of comparisons. Yeah, but, I think that's yeah. a great point, Carly. I mean, and we always say we I think we, we're sort of mislabeled a lot in the industry, right? We're, we're not just here to drive rates down. We're not just here to take revenue away from agencies or to help procurement reduce marketing's budgets. That's not our job. We want to give you the data and we want to let those clients make those informed decisions. I always say, look, benchmarks are directional. They're not gospel. There could be a perfectly legitimate reason why you would pay more than benchmark, right? Exactly. It could be it could be you're launching a new product and you want you want high level strategic and creative resources working on that piece of business. It could be you've got a rock star agency, right? That just won agency of the year or agency of the decade and you're happy working with them and you're willing to pay that premium that they command in the marketplace. Awesome. Could be you've got a rock star strategist or creative director on your business and you want to keep him or her happy. And so you pay more than what the market rate is for, for that particular role or, or, or function. So definitely agree with you. You do get what you pay for. You know, we, we think, you know, agencies are in business to make money just like the rest of us. So they should earn a fair profit and reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's up to our clients to decide what that might be, what, what's fair and reasonable. Um, I totally agree. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to win just by racing to the bottom from a pricing perspective. Right. And I agree with you that it's that benchmarks are directional, but they're also more powerful than that in that you don't know what you don't know. So having those data points and having that information is going to help make informed decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to switch gears for a second and ask you a little bit about trends. And you, like you said, of course, we're going to talk about COVID. What I want to know is from a before COVID and after COVID perspective, because um, obviously COVID disrupted everything. How you know how were um, were you seeing agency fee structures and pricing shift? So before COVID, what were the trends that you, that were popping up? Did it differ geographically? And then what are your predictions, or or what are you already seeing for change? You know, in the new future, the now. Yeah, great. Great, great question or, or, or questions. You know, I, I think pre-COVID, what we were seeing, and I'd say it's probably three, maybe five-year trend that I've noticed, is I think agencies making a concerted effort to move away from cost plus retainers. They want to move towards hourly rate cards. They, they don't want to disclose overhead. They don't want to disclose salaries or profit on, on a client's business. 
they want to move towards that hourly rate card. Now you can still go the fee route with that. You know, you're just going to build it up from hourly rates instead of down from salaries and overhead. Um, and that's fine. I, you know, we, we think there's not one particular cost compensation methodology that's better than the others. You know, they're all fine depending on what your needs are, what your, your philosophy is. What I always caution clients is, right, you know, even if you're going to go to an hourly rate card, just don't forget the agency gets to those hourly rates in the exact same way that they do a cost plus fee. They're going to start with salaries. They're going to add overhead to that. They're going to bake in a profit margin. And if you want to go to the hourly rate method, you're just going to take another math step, which is now let's divide by uh, by hours per FTE, and that there's your rate card. Um, so if you're going to move towards that, which I think a lot of clients have been doing, and agencies again are, are pushing for it, um, still ask for those factors, right? What what, how, what are you including in your salaries agency to get to these rates? What overhead did you apply to my business? Just because it's not in the definitions any longer it's not in the math equation because you're just looking at it from a one number 140 dollars an hour whatever it is you still want to see those those details the transparency behind how you get to that because that's way that's the way you're going to a know whether it's competitive or not and b if it's not what's driving that variance is it overhead is it is it profit is it a low number of hours per fte given a particular market all those variables really are, are ones that should be disclosed and uh you know if an agency doesn't want to disclose that to you that's always a sort of red flag to me um and if they say they can't disclose those variables to you then they're lying to you that's a that's an absolute red flag you know you might want to you want to raise that with them as you're, you're thinking of moving forward i think other you know the other trends looking at it from a media lens right i mean t 10 years ago commissions were dead and buried right um Five years ago, maybe three to five years ago, they started to a little bit of a resurrection there. We're seeing some clients, particularly on the buying side of things, right? They're moving away from fees. They're moving away from rate card. They're going uh, towards a commission basis. I think that that's uh, not a bad way to do it. it. It's obviously easier to administer. You don't have to get into the weeds on salaries and overhead and all that stuff. You don't even have to necessarily get into the weeds on a staffing plan. Um, your spend's going to fluctuate based on your budgets. And, and if if it's happy uh, for both sides, then great. Again, you know, you want to make sure those commission rates are competitive, right? Whatever those percentages are. Um, and there's ways to to get to that as well. And then obviously, you know, the the trend that everyone's talking about, I'm not frankly sure how much anybody's implementing it, but it's moving away from fees and input-based fees and moving towards deliverables or asset-based pricing. I think that gets a lot more lip service than it, it's getting in practice. We, we've got a, only a couple of clients that are actually doing it uh, as their only means of compensating their agencies. We've got a few others that are trying to get there, um, but it's hard. You know, you, it's a multi-year process i think you really have to get to know yourself as a client before you can get to a reasonable output based or deliverables based methodology because every client's different some might be super efficient and get stuff done in two or three rounds of review and others it's six to eight or or who knows how many um you got to set your baseline somewhere but then you really got to test it you got to track it and reconcile it on the front end until you get to a comfort level to say, we as client X, this is our process. This is the number of revisions and rounds of review and testing or whatever else we include. And that all that goes into how you how you look at things like that. Um, I think we're a ways off. I think, you know, again, some 
clients are doing it well, but but most aren't. Um, some are trying it, but they're still holding on to those hourly rates or to those that that traditional cost plus retainer as their primary means of of compensating their agencies. Um, coming coming out of COVID, perhaps. I mean, the the one trend that we're seeing, and, and this is like totally recent. In the last two weeks, we've had four separate clients ask us to help them with this one and it's uh, it's a new spin on blended rates and it's not the traditional blended rate that you think of where we're going to pay 150 bucks an hour for everybody regardless of their department or their their seniority level um, which by the way we would advise in almost all instances not to go down that path Bl blended rates are almost always favorable to the agencies um, but this is a different spin on it. This is blended uh, based on geography or location. Um, I hadn't seen this before, right? But but because of COVID, I think, where now you've got folks that have left New York and they've left San Francisco and they're working who knows where in the Catskills or in Montana or, or, or anywhere else in between, um, agencies are starting to blend rates at the job title level, but according to those locations. And so we saw one right they had san francisco they had new york they had tampa they had um austin they had salt lake city and uh and, and minneapolis and it's like okay uh, and then they're they're blending all those right but it, the very quick analysis we did for for one of those clients was you know it looks like what they've basically done is they've taken new york or they've taken san francisco rates and they, they've lopped off that 12 percent that we were talking about a minute ago uh, and they're calling that the blended rate across the country. Um, I'm not sure that's the right way to do it. I, I think you can get data for each of those markets. You can come up with a weighted or even an unweighted benchmark average and blend it that way. So, uh, but that's becoming something that we've seen truly um, in the last couple of weeks, like four different clients have had agencies propose this to them. Um, I think it's a, an interesting model. I think it, it needs to be fleshed out a little bit more. Um, but I think that that might be something in the future as people don't go, don't return to the office or they don't return to the major cities that we're used to, um, you know, those, those powerhouse cities of, of ad agencies like in New York or like a San Francisco, et cetera. Right. Yeah. You could, I was going to say it shouldn't, it shouldn't matter though. If the talent is the talent and, you know, the way the technology, you know, Oh, I saw Susan do a little head shift. So <laughs> I'm going to make sure she says, she, she says, uh, <laughs> what she was thinking um but yes cost of living whatever who knows if if anybody's salaries were ever taking care of their cost of living in new york and san francisco anyway um yeah. but if with technology you have access to everything all the tools you need and as we know a lot most of this uh business is about relationships and personalities and you still have that even if you move to the cat skills um, but I was going to say, and then of course I'll let Susan have a chance to talk. When I hear the word blended rate, it immediately gives that air of no transparency. Yeah. And <laughs> like where it's, it just gives that of we're hiding something and that's, that's something we want to get away from. But Susan, what were you going to say? And then oh. I have a question for George. Well, I, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, regardless of the talent, that's something that's just, you know, you can't really say that because, you know, we in our past lives have worked with people in different countries and you know there's a big cost disparity between paying for say US talent versus talent in India or in Costa Rica or in other locations. So I mean I don't think it's quite the same for someone who is going to say 
live in Montana and work as part of a New York agency team, not be in the office, not ha- not be meeting with all the sales reps and stuff like that. I, I think there is a, a difference you're paying for really being a part of that. But um, so that was kind of that look I gave you. But I had been waiting to hear George say whether or not the geographical issue was going to come up, because I remember, God, it was probably a year before COVID, a friend of mine, or I don't even remember who said it, um, someone on the agency side was saying, you know, they were talking about maybe moving some client teams closer to clients um, trying to right size geographically, but also then that would be a lower lower pay for the agency teams than being based in New York. So I was I I imagine that's going to start really happening um, now post COVID. And I and I think the the blended rate to Carly's point. I think that's a great way for agencies to recoup some money by cutting an employee's salary by 30% because they want to stay in Montana and then dropping the rate by only 20% for the client. Yeah, th- that's key. And, th- and that's why, you know, when, when we would look at something like that, the, the first thing we're going to look at is what, what type of agency is it? Because a media agency's economics are going to be different than an ad agency is going to be different than a PR agency's. But secondarily, and then most and equally as important is where are they, where's the staff located? Because, um, yeah, if I'm an expat, right, and I'm if I'm honest, if I'm a New Yorker and they they ship me out to Detroit because I want to work on the new auto client that they just landed, um, I'm sort of a domestic expat. I'm probably going to keep my New York salary and benefits and things like that because it's going to be attractive for me to take that role and relocate my family out to out to Detroit. Um, but if I'm if I'm local, if I'm not relocating, if I'm not, you know, if I'm in Montana and that's where I'm a resident, then yeah, let's pay Montana-based market wages and, and the overheads will be different. Um, and all that should be factored in, right? So agencies like to take the sort of easy route, which is we, we'll call it a lower cost market and we'll just lop off a certain percentage from from mm-hmm. New York or San Francisco. And yeah, that's some savings and a reduction, but it's really not the way you ought to go to build it up. Right. I think it's one of those things that's always been an it depends. Yeah. And it <laughs> depends on whether it's the the client's request to have somebody nearby or the employees request to be in a more desirable location for themselves. I think that's going to make a difference. Yeah. Um, but I have a follow-up question. You were When we were talking about the trends in agency compensation models, I heard you say a few times, you know, their primary compensation. But what I didn't hear you, and maybe you were implying it or you're not seeing it anymore, I'm curious about um, you know, incentive compensation models. Is that what you meant by then? Those those are secondary um, compensation, or you just are you not seeing that as much? Uh, I'm just curious from your point of yeah, view. Yeah, we we still see it. Um, although I, I do think it's it's clients are moving away from it. I think the jury has gone out and maybe has come back whether incentive compensation pay per performance is worth the effort or not. Um, I used to run that program for one of our agencies at IBM. It's a lot of work from an admin perspective to to do it. Um, and oftentimes you're all you're doing is paying the money you would have paid to the agency in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're just if we're just holding back 
8% of our fee and we, we know that the metrics are going to be so that the agency makes those metrics and we're going to give them back that 8% of the fee at the end of the year. What's the point? You know, um, I had a CFO, a good friend of mine who was a CFO of one of the big agency networks. And he said, you know, the, the only true incentive to an agency is to not get fired. Mm -hmm. um, doing, we do these incentive programs because our clients want us to, but it doesn't change agency behavior. It doesn't drive, um, drive those changes that I think it does on paper. Um, and so while we do have clients that still do those and then uh, every now and then they'll ask, how should we structure it? How do we set it up? We are seeing more and more clients sort of move away from that, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting because, you know, if you go to those A&A sort of uh, compensation trends that they release every couple of years, right? For years, it was all on the increase. It was on the upswing. Everyone was starting to do incentives. I think now the data is going to show that it's it's on the downward, the downward trend as well. I would agree. I just, I think if it went back to its true intention, which is to reward for extraordinary work, yeah. as opposed to reward for expected work is what yeah, absolutely. that's right. Mm -hmm. And I think you got to, it's got to be meaningful, right? 5% up or down. It's, it's not worth the, it's not worth the effort or the paper that it's, it's written on. Um, and there ought to be a malice component too, right? For sure. Man, many, many of them are just upside for the agency. Mm -hmm. um, well, if they really truly want to have uh, skin in the game, then there's mm -hmm. got to be a downside too. And Client agencies don't want to do that, right? It's always it's either two two times on the upside and one time on the downside, or it's not going to be any on the downside. Well, that's not fair. Um, if if you're going to do it, do it right. But but it really becomes in many cases overly burdensome to manage on both sides. I mean, losing money is a gig or not losing money is a gigantic incentive. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one of the um, CMOs I worked for on the client side, he always said this. Should the agency get up in the morning, put their feet on the floor, and make a profit just because we are their client? And that's during the heyday of these incentives, right? Mm. I really do think what you know Carly is saying about, you know, you get what you pay for. And, you know, is it really worth it to just like say, you know, it's five percent or eight percent? I think it has to have a lot of teeth. Yeah, I totally and agree. The more teeth it has, and the more the agency feels that they can contribute to that incentive, because they can control the thing that that you know is on. Yeah, that that's true. And there's some clients, some industries, right, where it's arguable how much impact the advertising had on it, right? If if I'm selling a a supercomputer to the Navy, um, IBM, right? How much did the marketing impact that buy that might have taken five years of a salesman's life to, to, to grease Congress and everybody else that needs to, to, to be involved in it, right? So arguably the marketing didn't play a huge role in that. Whereas car dealership campaign or a soft drink or something like that. Yeah, it probably did have a huge impact. Um, you got to make it meaningful. You got to make it things that the agency can impact directly. Um, and you should have a, you know, skin in the game on, on both sides. It, it should be uh, upward risk and reward really is, is at the end of the day. 
Well, you had mentioned the ANA in uh, that discussion, and you know we know you attended the ANA's Advertising Financial Management Conference virtually, like we did. I think I yeah. saw you typing in the chat during this particular yeah. one. Um, so, you know, the three of us had recorded a podcast um, summarizing our key takeaways a few episodes back, and uh, one of the more provocative questions was around um, the session with Jay Pattisall from Forrester, who proposed this digital FTE model as a supplement for agencies to pay for AI and automation. We were debating a lot during that. And in fact, Carrie Ann said, I wonder what George thinks about this. So George, what do you think about this? Well, well, for, first of all, that was a great podcast episode. I did listen to it. I, I had, my eyes got big, like, uh, like my my daughter when she was little when i heard my name perry ann said my <laughs> name i wasn't expecting that so thank you for that, that was, you're famous i'm famous i, I did I, I had to play people have been my, waiting for you to join us I had, I had to play it for my kids just to show them and they keep saying what what the heck do you do for a living well that, that, that's what i did um but no great great honestly to the three of you that was a great podcast really really well balanced good review of the conference i think you had some good pointed criticisms where it was warranted and some really good points that you brought up. Um, I don't know Jay personally. I, I should say that I do know of him. I, I read his work. I, I do enjoy his research and Foresters. I think that they're, that's a great, great organization. Um, the digital FTEs, it was one of the ones where I actually submitted some questions at the end in the chat box. And it was, I think the only one that the ANA actually used that I had asked during all the sessions and, um, about it, you know, I think there was a sort of intent to be a little, a little provocative and let's come up with something that doesn't exist. Um, I, for the life of me, don't know how you would define a digital FTE. Um, we have trouble defining a human FTE because each agency wants to say it's 1,600 hours. No, it's 2,000 hours. No, it's 1,850 here and it's less in France and it's more in China. Um, we're going to do that for digital work. I, I don't know how we get there. Um, at the end of the day, right, I mean, I think it's going to happen. There's going to be AI is going to become part of the marketing landscape and automation and other tools and platforms, just like there are today, right? There are tools and platforms that agencies utilize. Um, traditionally, those costs were passed through as part of overhead. Um, in recent years, maybe on the media side, you've seen more of them come out of overhead and become more direct pass-through expenses out of pocket that clients get charged for it directly. Um, you know, in the olden days, they needed the Donovan system and, and, and Nielsen research and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that there's a, a role for it. Um, but what, what I was thinking throughout the whole presentation uh, that while it was going on was, right, we've been talking about trust and transparency now for at least five years, probably longer. Um, it's an agency industry that clamors for trust and transparency. And frankly, we're not there. We, we, we talk about it all the time, but we don't have true transparency in many respects. Some clients and agencies are more transparent than others. Um, but I think about the whole K2 report, right? And, and what came out of that and programmatic. And we still have holding companies that publicly say, we work in a non-disclosed model if you don't like it, you're free to work with somebody else, but we're not going to give you that transparency that you want. So how are we going to say that this digital FTE thing, right? And what's it based on? Um, because I think we're going to run into those same problems. So I, I think, again, there, there's a role for it. I think um, 
AI is going to become more prevalent. You know, I, I'm in a fantasy football league in one of the one of the major networks, and they have a, a AI interface that writes up the league summary every week. It's a it's a it's a computer generated summary with like jokes and and sort of. Uh, <laughs> picks on people who didn't do so well and, and the computer does all this. So I think it's coming. <laughs> um, whether or not and how we compensate agencies for that, I think needs to still be fleshed out a little bit. I think, you know, the ultimate goal, right? I think they talked about it was uh, freeing up the human staff to do more important tasks. Um, fair enough, in theory. I think reality, right? What do we know from the, the, the ad agency industry? Right? It's going to free up humans to go look for jobs in other industries because they've been replaced by by ai and, and by computers and and the robots are coming for us um so sum it up i think you know obviously it's important obviously it's coming it, it's a thing that's going to become more prevalent in the industry um, we really need to give it some thought how we get to that transparency behind it what goes into those platforms and to those computer programs and, and how we ultimately end up paying for it. I think it's going to end up in a pass-through type expense or or in within overhead like it would traditionally versus a, a staffing plan of digital hours. I, I just don't know how that's going to end up, end up working. Yeah. And what I didn't hear from him was like, I agreed with him up until he proposes digital FTE. I didn't hear him taking away any of the pass through charges for any of the tools or platforms that the agencies are using. It was sounded like an adding on of digital FTE hours to kind of compensate for that. So again, it, it, I, I, don't, I don't say that want to say the agencies are going to do this, but it, it does lack a lot of transparency and leave for agencies to yeah. you know, perhaps get themselves in trouble with taking advantage of it a bit. Yeah. And, and, and you know, procurement teams, marketing ops teams, we're, we're, we've been conditioned over the last 20 years, right? You want to drill down what's included in this FTE. What, what staffing level are they? How many years of experience do they have? Is there title inflation on the agency side? Those are questions that you, you'd still want to ask, I think. And now you're just calling it Digital FTE, well, again, what, what exactly does that mean and what am I getting for it? Um, and Susan, you raise a great point, right? Is it just a way to add more costs without additional services being offered because it's already being covered in these other platforms mm -hmm. that they're using? Then, yeah, then that that's something you really want to want to drill down into. I think Forrester's role in the industry at large is that they're a provocateur. Right, they're they're gonna say, yeah, you know, let's definitely, you know, go to Mars. You, you, you know, they're they're gonna be so out there. But that, you know, when DSPs were first invented and DMPs, that was always their role. But he didn't necessarily um, serve it up that way. Like, you know, I've got this uh, very you know provocative way of thinking about it. You know if what they were able to do was just get people to consider it and look at the pros and cons, I think he probably did his job. But that brings us to like overhead, right? I think it's so funny you said, we don't even know what a human FTE is. And now we want this digital FTE that he's talking about. It was like, wow. And so now let's talk about overhead because that's been around for, you know, as long as you've been in this business, yeah, right? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. And, you know, COVID, you know, it had an impact, right? Um, so what do you think has changed? And are, are you seeing, um, you know, a real trend uh, downward 
uh, which was kind of like what we expected to happen with COVID? Yeah, great question. I knew I knew you're going to ask me that one. Um, and it, it is a question, a you know, contemporary one that a lot of clients are asking is how, how has the pandemic impacted overhead? And I think intuitively we want to say overhead should all come down because of people not be coming in, into the office, people working from home, um, so on and so forth. You know, I think IPG said that they had gotten rid of half a million square feet of office space that wasn't coming back. We've seen WPP consolidating agencies into different buildings and, and getting rid of some some um, properties that they they had they had owned or or had leased. Um, so I, I think for sure agencies' fixed costs, uh, as a general rule, have shrunk. Um, now that said, there have been new costs incurred. They've got to get everybody a Zoom account or or uh, Slack or other sort of collaboration tools. So it's not completely gone away entirely. Um, but as a general rule, I think fixed costs have come down a little bit. Um, and with that, you know, agency overhead should come down and the clients that, that should benefit from that. Now, from a from a um, contemporary perspective, we, we've supported two clients recently in, in agency searches. Um, and one was out in California, one was in the Midwest. Um, and surprisingly, I mean, we're seeing it in the marketplace because the agencies, one was a holding company level pitch and one was just a, you know, independent or not independent, but rather individual agency uh, participants um, with all but one exception. And I'll leave that to you and the listeners to figure out which holding company just can't help themselves and they have to come in super sky high all the time. Um, but all the others came in below our benchmarks for overhead, right, as their first sort of offering. Um, and, and that was surprising to me. I, I think we typically would would have to negotiate that on behalf of clients or have the clients do it themselves. To see them open with that as the offering, I think, is indicative of, yeah, overheads um, have come down uh, to an extent. Uh, and the agencies are recognizing that and they're they're trying to pass that through to to the clients. Now, I do think it's a buyer's market, and I think maybe that that was one of the reasons why they 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 did it was to try to get a leg up on the competition for these two particular bids. Um, so yeah, Perry, and I would say, as a general rule, they've come down. Now, that said, counterintuitively, um, we've seen them go up with one particular client. This was a very, very large advertiser spend-wise. Um, this is a company in an industry that was not hit by the pandemic. In fact, this this company increased their media spend during COVID by about $200 million. Um, so a large, large player in, in this industry. And uh, we're working with them now to assess their agency proposals for next year and the overhead's gone up. Why is that? And you're scratching your head, Perianne. Uh, well, this client, right, didn't have to cut its budgets, didn't have to fire its agency because of the pandemic. Whereas other clients of this agency did, they scaled back, they they resigned the business entirely. This client is paying its, the price for its loyalty in essence because its share now of those fixed costs has gotten larger. Um, so counterintuitively, it doesn't make any sense, but now they're they're asking us to pay a larger overhead. So now we've got some conversations to have with the agency um, and, and figure out how we can mitigate that, right? Because it, it's not self-evident that just because costs have gone down, overhead goes down for everybody. Some of the, some of the more, um, I hate to say loyal, because some clients had to reduce their budgets and had no choice given what happened in the world. Um, but those 
agencies that uh, those clients that stuck with them um, we're seeing a little bit on the upswing so it's a little bit of a mixed bag as to whether uh, overheads are going to come down entirely or, or whether it's going to be more on a, a case-by-case client-by-client uh, basis that was a an eye-opener for me that was just a wow moment but it does i think you hit on the important point which is doing these analyses and comparisons again give you the information you need to then make those negotiations they it, it shouldn't just be a accept you can't just accept the what's proposed to you if it doesn't make sense for you it's just another thing to to for yeah. for marketers to negotiate with their agencies yeah absolutely so i'm going to switch gears so something that uh, media plus advisors were always talking about um is that we see marketer agency relationships kind of fall into everything that's going on falls into three buckets people process and platforms so we want to just focus for this question on people a little bit i know we talked about it earlier about you know uh location and pay and all of that but from a bigger macro level we would love for you to share your thoughts on how the agency talent deficit that we're hearing about and how people are fleeing quote unquote we heard that in the news you know they're fleeing the industry because of burnout or desire to for more flexibility we're we're assuming this is going to have a huge impact on agency remuneration models so we'd love to hear your thought on people and talent and and what you're thinking yeah it's interesting was it was it Mark Twain who said the, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated? I, I think the whole death of the ad industry and the fleeing of talent is over-exaggerated. Um, I think there might be a fleeing of big holding company-owned agencies. Um, nobody likes to work in corporate America, right? We all fled corporate America ourselves um, for for different reasons, perhaps. But uh, there's there's stuff out there that that's not these big, behemoth bureaucratic organizations, whether that's a client or an agency side of things. Um, you know, most most of, I think all, but certainly most of the holding companies have reported Q2 earnings in the last couple of weeks, and all of them seem to be doing great. Um, revenue levels back up to pre-pandemic ones or, or projected to get there by the end of this year. 2022 we're going to have another olympics the winter olympics i didn't realize that until last week right it's starting in six months we're going to have midterm elections in the u.s um knock on wood hopefully there's not a huge delta variant or, or other sort of regression as far as COVID goes but it looks like the industry is rebounding and pretty pretty nicely well if the talent's all gone who's doing all the work right and, and so i don't think they're necessarily leaving the industry i think they're leaving the big behemoth agencies. You're seeing a lot of freelance work done. You're seeing a lot of smaller shops or independents start to win some pretty significant and sexy accounts. Um, from a freelance perspective, or, or you're seeing smaller like content agencies, right? Like a Media Monks or like S4, Oliver, Hogarth, you know, they're doing things cheaper they're doing things more quickly um and at a pretty pretty decent quality clip right so so clients are starting to use those as alternate models what i think is going to happen right is, is many of those smaller agencies the overhead in particular right should come down because they don't have 
the overhead of, of, a, of a large network. They don't have the rent. They don't have the space and facilities. In a lot of instances, the people, other than a, a few key executives or founders, a lot of the folks that are working for them are freelancers. And so they don't have benefits that they're paying, right? These are 1099 contract workers that are that are hanging out their own shingle. And so we see that um, a lot lately. We've gotten a few proposals from uh, clients that are working with some of those types of, of agencies. Um, and, and you're seeing things like, you know, 50% overhead proposed, 60% overhead proposed, way, way lower than what we're no, used to seeing, right, in the 105 to 120% range, uh, depending on, on the location and the, uh, and the agency type. So I think that's a trend that's going to be, uh, be continuing. I, I think we're going to still see the work getting done, um, but it's going to be done by shops that we haven't heard of yet or by these uh confederations of freelancers that someone's like a general contractor that they're just they're pulling them all in pulling their buddy i have a friend in austin texas who does this um he's a creative director formerly of a, a big agency network and now he's on his own and he doesn't have any employees he just pulls his buddies in when they have a project and one's a strategist and one's an art director and one's an editor one's a producer and they get the stuff done and off they go to the next one. Um, so that, that I think is what we're going to see a lot, a lot more happening. And that's going to impact agency compensation because you, you're going to get rid of a lot of the things that we've been having to pay for from an agency side of things for, for years. Um, and then we've got the whole, you know, the whole Accenture and Deloitte and IBM and the consultancies, they're all now playing in this arena. Uh, and what we've seen here, right, is Accenture doesn't know how to, price ad agency staffing plans that we we've all worked there that that model is very very different but our clients are asking them to do it like show me the salaries and the overhead and the profit margin show me the traditional components that any other traditional agency has been providing to me for years and the consultants are going that that's not our model our overhead's 200 percent. well why is that because our executives are compensated primarily on bonuses at the end of the year. We got to account for that and bake it in, right? We all lived it, not on the agency consultancy side, but but on the consultancy side. So that's a little learning curve. Like, are we going to force these consultancies to use that traditional agency model? And some of them do it and others kick and scream and, and say that's not their model. Um, or are clients going to catch up to those guys and say, you know what? It's not how we're going to even ask for it anymore. We're going to want to look at it through a traditional consultant's lens, which is very, very different as how they structure those those deals. Yeah, interesting. And I, and I wonder of the people who do stay within the agency or, or the holding company model, is it just a great opportunity for them to, you know, everyone from Mindshare go get a job at uh, Dentsu and everyone from Dentsu go get hired at at Mindshare and everyone just kind of ratchets up their salaries a little bit. I remember back when I was at MediaVest, it felt like at one point, like everyone was trading back and forth between uh, MediaVest and MediaEdge. And, you know, it would just be a way for people to get higher salaries, but everybody needed it. You know, there were only so many media people you were going to hire at certain levels. Yeah, so Yeah, that's funny. When I was at IHG and we were hiring some folks for my team and I looked at a lot of resumes in Atlanta um, and I started to notice this trend of everybody I was looking at all had the exact same jobs at the exact yeah. same companies, except six or a year and a half months apart. Yeah. And I thought it was just like musical chairs. You go from Delta to to uh, Home Depot to uh, Coca Cola to whatever, and then you just end up at IHG for your for your rotation, and then you move. And 
your buddy who's applying for the same job is just six months behind you doing the same thing. And it's very, very funny that you say that, Susan. Yep, pretty much how it goes. Um, well, this has been really interesting. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know or perhaps any questions you have for us? Yeah, for, first of all, thank you. This has been awesome. I really obviously always enjoy talking to the three of you. Um, it's been really great, as I as I mentioned to you the other day, uh, working with you all again, and we've we've done a couple of projects this year together in partnership, and and that's been fantastic. It's been great watching Media Plus Advisors be born and grow and and, and get to where you are today. I do have a question. I, I'd love your point of view on it, and it 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 sort of related to what we've been talking about earlier, which is. Um, you know, I'm not a big marketer, so how do I compete with the P and Gs of the world? Um, I want to look at it from a media lens, specifically your your area of expertise, um, but also from the agency side of things. So I hear all the time, and I think the agencies will market themselves as, you know, from a media perspective, bigger is better. Group M buys more media around the world each year than all the other players do. Uh, therefore, logic would would have you think that they get the best rates for their clients. If I'm out pitching that, you should become a client of ours, you'll get the best rates. Now, I've heard others say that that's not necessarily the case. Um, you could be working with a much smaller media agency or, or network, like Havas doesn't buy nearly as much as Group M does. Um, but if you get the A team at Havas, maybe they're working better and harder and more efficiently for you, you're going to get better rates than the C or the D team at, at Group M. So the question really for, for all of you or whoever wants to, to grab it, um, you know, what do you see in that regard? Do, does bigger equal better rates from a, from, for the clients from, from a media agency perspective, or does it really depend on the team, the brief, the strategy, the planning, and, and all that, that else that goes into it? I, who, I, I'm happy to answer that or Perry, yeah, I don't I'll, know if you want. Yeah, I'll jump in. I, my point of view is is that there's no such thing as buying media anymore. It almost doesn't exist with some exceptions. Because right now, we've moved from a media-centric model to one that is audience-centric. So, you know, obviously, there's going to be exceptions to that. You want to buy the Super Bowl or the Olympics or whatever, or, you know, specific environments on, you know, Snap or whatever. But for the most part, we have pulled apart audiences and media. And when that happened, um, you know, clout kind of had took a nosedive. I do not think that clout is as important as it once was. Uh, what I do think is important is access to innovation, access to ideas. So if you're, you know, big big companies like to work with big companies, you know, to do big things. And I think that that's where, um, you know, clients can be advantaged is, you know, with innovation and ideas rather than, you know, rates. So I think that, you know, the cloud thing is, is going to be very hard to kill off though. I think 10 years from now, we'll still be talking about it, but I think it's a little bit more myth than reality these days, depending on the business that you're in. In the, US. Kind of prov- in the U.S. In, in the in U.S. In the U.S. <laughs> yes. Go to China and other places, you know, you know, very, very different. Right. And, and I guess I would add, um, you know, it, it's less about the um, A team at one agency versus the C or D team. 
but the the client, the what they're buying, the client behaviors, um, are they constantly canceling? Do they do they have a lot of demands? Um, when you're still talking about TV, you're still talking about a client's bases. Stay with them, um, even as that person, you know, percentage of linear TV shifts. They're still then, you know, expanding those deals into other channels. So, like the client bases matter. The client behavior matters. Um, so, so those things are going to matter more than the agency necessarily. I mean, Susan uh, just said client behavior. Wow, that that is so key, right? Yeah. Well, you can yeah. have the the best buyer from the biggest agency buying for a client that has a lot of bad behavior, that's always canceling money, um, shifting things, needs to do this, has a lot of demands. I, I, I mean, a, a network or a vendor of any media type is going to respond to what how difficult they know that client is, regardless of how strong the buyer is. I want to add one more thing. There's also quality of what they're buying because anybody can get lower costs if they're buying crap <laughs> mm, <right. Yeah. laughs> you know um so it really makes it such a difference of what a client is looking for and it goes back to what Perianne was saying if it's a particular audience it doesn't matter who the buyer is in that case if it if the if the the if it's hard to come by that audience, it's going to get a higher price. If it's easier, it's going to get a, a lower price. If there's you know supply and demand takes. I, I know now I'm just like babbling, but the, it goes yeah. back to the it depends, and there are so many so yeah. many factors. Um, but I, but I would agree that in the U.S. I'm agreeing with Perry Ann that in the U.S. clout is kind of become a little bit of a meaningless word, but. And that is our area focus is the U.S. and Canada, but we have so much experience in the rest of the world. And and you know, for for some of our listeners that are our friends from other other countries, there's there's no doubt that in Europe, for example, it it really matters who the agency is. There, each each agency has specific relationships, specific costs locked in, and you're, there's no, it's not about bases like it is in the U.S. Oh. It's, it, your costs don't travel with you. You're the, the agencies Agency kind of own right. that. Yeah. 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 I love that. that. That's really insightful. Thank you all of it. Perry Ann, I'm stealing insights and innovation, by the way. That's a really great phrase. And you can uh, have it. You can I have can it. have it. All right. I don't have to steal it. <laughs> but it is, I agree with that too, that some of the bigger, the bigger holding companies, they have more money to invest in the tools and the people that are going to serve up those insights and innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. No, that, 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 that's really helpful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, George, for your time. You know, we we feel the same way about you as you said you feel about us. We love talking to you. We consider you, you know, our, one of our friends and confidence and, and, and go-to for information um, about the industry overall, not just agency compensation. And we look forward to uh, talking to you soon, working with you again. And um, we thank our listeners for spending some time with us again, and we look forward to our next podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much.